on July 22, 2001. 28-year-old Nikki McCowan was just weeks away from marrying the love of her life. She was set to address wedding envelopes with her fiancé that evening. However, a trip to the laundromat would soon turn to a mystery. A mystery with no end. Nikki would never return home, and months later her vehicle would be found 45 miles away, with no clues as to her whereabouts. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 24, The Disappearance of Marilyn Nikki McCowan. Hello everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact information will be listed at the end of the episode. If you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and voting rights, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash midwestmysteryfiles. I'm currently sitting at two patrons, so I would like to thank Laura and Teresa for their help. Now, on to today's case. Marilyn Nicole McCowan, or Nikki, spelled N-I-Q-U-I, as she was commonly called, was born on January 6, 1973, to Barbara McCowan. Nikki grew up in Richmond, Indiana, right on the Ohio-Indiana state line, and while in high school, she would begin to date Bobby Webster. The two would date for three and a half years before breaking up shortly after high school when Bobby would move to California. After the breakup, Nikki would begin dating Stephen Johnston. The two would ultimately end the relationship after a time, but not before the two would have but not before the two would have a daughter together by the name of Peyton. After Nikki and Stephen's breakup, Bobby Webster would return to Richmond and the two would reignite their romance, which would soon turn into an engagement. That engagement would be the couple's status in July of 2001. At this time, the couple was living in Richmond. Nikki was 28 years old and was working at the Montgomery County Pre-Release Program in Montgomery County, Ohio, a minimum security prison that required inmates to participate in substance abuse and academic programs. She was on the dean's list at Sinclair Community College and dreamed of a job in law enforcement. On Sunday, July 22, 2001, three weeks before Nikki and Bobby's wedding, Nikki was doing her normal Sunday routine of laundry, which she did every Sunday at a laundromat located at South 10th Street and E Street in Richmond. The laundromat was located just down the road from the home of Nikki's sister, Tammy Hughes. According to interviews with her family, Nikki would generally start her laundry at the laundromat and then go and hang out with family at Tammy's house while it was washing and drying. I want to note, reports vary on whose house Nikki would hang out at, as some state it was her mother's house. However, Tammy is directly quoted by Crime Watch Daily as it being her house. So that's what I'm working with. This particular day, around 3 p.m., Nikki would walk into Tammy's home exclaiming, They just won't leave me alone. Apparently, two men were harassing Nikki outside of the laundromat. Nikki was apprehensive about returning to the laundry. However, she eventually returned with plans on bringing the laundry back to Tammy's to finish it there. Bobby and Nikki were planning to address wedding envelopes at 6 p.m. that night. Bobby would return home at around 4.30, 
and while he expected Nikki to come home shortly after, he was not initially concerned. Telling Crime Watch Daily, quote, I started watching TV, and I got lost in that TV show, so I got kind of lost on time, and just assumed that she was over at a friend's house, just, you know, chatting about the wedding, and, you know, doing extra shopping, too. I assumed she was out spending more money than we were agreeing to spend. I guess, she liked the shop. Another hour would go by, and Bobby would begin to grow slightly concerned, as would members of Nikki's family, as she never returned to Tammy's to finish her laundry. At this juncture, Bobby would join with the rest of the family, and they would begin a search for Nikki, starting with the laundromat. Upon checking there, they would find that neither Nikki or her 1990 GMC Jimmy were anywhere in the vicinity. The family would call hospitals and friends of Nikki, but would find that no one had seen her, and no one matching Nikki's description had been admitted to any area hospitals. At this juncture, Bobby would attempt to file a missing persons report, but was informed that as Nikki was an adult, he would need to wait 72 hours before a missing persons report could be filed. Monday would come, and there would still be no sign of Nikki, as she had still not been seen by family, nor did she show up for her job on Monday morning. Michelle McCowan, Nikki's sister, would tell Crime Watch Daily, quote, I started crying and I knew something was wrong because she loved her job and Nikki didn't miss no work. After the 72-hour mark would pass, a missing persons report would be filed and police would begin combing the Richmond area. No signs of Nikki could be found anywhere. Her presence would be confirmed around the time of her disappearance when surveillance from a convenience store near the area of the laundromat would catch Nikki making a purchase. The lead about the two men harassing Nikki outside the laundromat would also be followed, but unfortunately, nothing would come of it. Soon, as is common in missing person cases involving anyone with a partner, Bobby Webster, Nikki's fiancé, would catch the eye of police and family and become a person of interest. Members of Nikki's family would note that Bobby would always be too cleaned up to be searching for a missing person and seemed that he was more interested in how he looked for the media. Nikki's sister, Tammy, would tell Crime Watch Daily, quote, When we were doing the searches, of course you don't care about what you look like. You see people out there? We were a mess. I mean, if you see some of the photographs, you will see. But he was always the clean person. He was always dressed up. I guess ready for if he was on camera. I could care less how I look. If I'm looking for my sister, I'm looking for my sister. Outside of his appearance, Bobby would begin doing a few other things that would cause some suspicion. Detective Michelle Miller would tell Crime Watch, quote, He started having behavior that was somewhat suspicious. He had canceled the wedding hall, got a refund for that. He had tried to return the ring to get a refund for that. Had looked into her schooling, money for school, to get a refund. Bobby would defend his actions by claiming he was just trying to get money to assist with the search for Nikki. Telling Unsolved Mysteries, quote, I was to the point where it was like, this wedding doesn't matter. Nikki's well-being is what matters right now. Police and detectives were not completely convinced and would request that Bobby agree to a polygraph. Reportedly, Bobby would fail the test, with Richmond Police Sergeant Bradley Burner telling Unsolved Mysteries, quote, One of the questions that was asked to Mr. Webster was, Did you have anything to do with the disappearance of Nikki McCowan? He says, No. And the needle jumped off the chart. So not only did he fail... He failed miserably. Bobby would go on to deny failing the polygraph and would insist that neither him or his lawyer had seen the results. 
Despite failing the polygraph and his strange behavior, police still did not have any physical evidence to move forward, leaving him as nothing more than a person of interest. Over the next several months, police would continue to investigate and follow leads, interviewing almost 200 people in the search for Nikki McCowan. The warm summer would turn to fall, and the leaves would change color and fall to the ground. Events every young girl, like Peyton, would want her mom there for, such as the first day of school or trick-or-treating, would come and go, with no sign of Nikki. Then, in November 2001, a new lead would arise. On Saturday, November 3rd, a patrolling sheriff's deputy in Dayton, Ohio, 46 miles east of Richmond, would spot a vehicle in the parking lot of the Meadows of the Catalpa apartment complex. The inside of the vehicle had been ransacked. The passenger door lock had been punched with the door being opened ajar, and the ignition had been tampered with. The deputy would call in the 1990 GMC Jimmy, which would come back as being registered to Robert Webster, better known as Bobby Webster, Nikki's fiance. The Jimmy was the same one that Nikki had been driving the day she disappeared. Furthermore, Nikki's laundry would be found in the vehicle, neatly folded and placed in baskets. Police would note that the positioning of the driver's seat appeared to measure where Nikki would need to place it in order to drive the vehicle herself. In a November 4, 2001 article from the Dayton Daily News, Richmond Police Sergeant Bradley Burner would report that several residents had reported seeing the vehicle at the location since August or September, and that some residents had even reported seeing the vehicle moved from time to time. The vehicle was quickly taken by police and gone over with a fine-tooth comb. Police would process the vehicle for fingerprints, blood, or other pieces of DNA, but nothing of value would ultimately be found. Adding another piece to the puzzle, investigators would quickly learn that the Meadows of Catalpa was where Nikki had resided in 1997 with her ex-boyfriend and the father of her daughter, Stephen Johnston. In fact, Stephen still lived in the complex. Investigators would quickly contact Stephen and he would agree to take a polygraph. Stephen would tell Crime Watch Daily, quote, lie detector test, gave my DNA, whatever they needed. I would have given it to them the very next day. All they had to do was ask. Stephen would pass the polygraph test. That, coupled with a strong alibi for the police, would clear Stephen of any suspicion in the case. Areas around the complex and Dayton would be searched extensively for any sign of Nikki. Despite new revelations and leads, and more extensive searching, little headway would be made. In December of 2001, Richmond police would deal a striking blow to the family's hopes when they would announce that it was believed Nikki was most likely deceased. While he wouldn't go into much detail, in a December 20th article from the Dayton Daily News, Richmond police detective Roger Redmond would tell the Daily that the investigation was leading in the direction that she most likely met foul play after driving to Dayton to meet someone. He would further speculate that the meeting involved someone from the Montgomery County pre-release program where Nikki worked. He would go on to tell the Daily News, quote, something transpired. I don't think she is alive at this time. The investigation is related to Dayton. According to Unsolved Mysteries, it was eventually discovered via cell phone records Nikki made a phone call to a co-worker who lived about a mile from where her SUV was found in Dayton. They talked about beauty products, and the friend told Nikki she could purchase the items she was looking for 
in Dayton. We'll return to this individual that Nikki may have met with shortly. Despite the grim news that Nikki may be deceased, her family would persevere and do all they could to get Nikki's name out there. On March 29, 2002, the family would hold a prayer vigil for Nikki at the Montgomery Pre-Release Program Center in Dayton. Despite pouring rain and what I can only imagine was chilly weather, 20 people were in attendance including friends, family, and Bobby Webster. In a March 30th article on the event by the Dayton Daily News, Nikki's sister, Michelle, would show just how hopeful and optimistic she was that Nikki was still going to come home, stating, quote, She's going to have a big wedding. She was so excited. She was happier than she's ever been in her life. Michelle would go on to state that her and her family had contacted the FBI, America's Most Wanted, President of the United States at the time, George W. Bush, and every senator that they could think of. They were not going to be deterred in their search for Nikki. In May of 2004, a female body was found wrapped in a tarp behind Seben Thaler Company Nursery in Harrison Township, Ohio, near Dayton, Ohio. There was new rekindled hope. If the body turned out to be Nikki, at the very least, some questions as to what had happened to her could be answered. In a May 9, 2004 article from the Dayton Daily News, Nikki's brother, Edmund Hampton, would state, It's got our suspicions aroused. This is not the first time, but it's the first time it's been close. It would, however, turn out to not be Nikki. The body was positively identified through dental records as 29-year-old Michelle Napier of Dayton, Ohio. She had been reported missing in October of 2003. Her murder remains unsolved. Now we'll backtrack to the individual who police said Nikki may have been visiting in Dayton in 2001. While not much would be found in Nikki's vehicle or around the complex where it was found, and Stephen Johnston was cleared right away, it wouldn't take police long to discover that the apartment complex was in close proximity of another individual who Nikki McCowan knew. Tommy Swint was never named publicly until 2007. However, he was on investigators' radars not long after discovering the vehicle in Dayton. It's also never been made explicitly clear if this is who Nikki called that led her to Dayton for beauty supplies. Tommy Swint was an Alabama native born in 1966. As a young man, he joined the Marines and saw some combat in Panama in 1989. Shortly after, he would go AWOL, and he would later be discharged under less than honorable conditions. In a July 2007 Dayton Daily News article, he stated that he would spend his free time volunteering at homeless shelters and boys' homes, as well as speaking at high schools about self-esteem. I don't want to spend much time giving Tommy's life story too much attention, but I thought these would be important things to know before moving into his actual involvement in the case. Both Nikki McCowan and Tommy Swint started working at the Montgomery County Education and Release Program Center in 1994, and were both working there in 2001. Some reports have stated that Nikki and Swint had a close relationship and were, quote, more than friends. This has been denied by the McCowan family, in which they state that Swint was obsessed with Nikki. Nikki's sisters, Tammy and Michelle, would tell Crime Watch Daily that this obsession came to a head in 2001 at Nikki's bridal shower. Swint was not present at the shower, but there was a gift there containing lingerie. Tammy would go on to state, quote, He sent it. Very creepy. His behavior, 
plus his proximity to where Nikki's vehicle was found, had already been fuel for the fire of suspicion against him. It would soon be found he also had an alleged history of violence against women, which police would find out through various interviews. With Dayton detective Patty Tackett telling Crime Watch Daily, quote, Many people said that, and especially towards women, very violent towards women. That seemed to be the common denominator, was that it was the violence towards women. When Swint himself was questioned, Detective Michelle Miller would have this to say, quote, He was not completely cooperative. There was something odd about him, never quite cooperative. When it answered questions completely, or go off subject. With another person of interest, but only circumstantial evidence, Richmond police were unable to charge or pursue Swint any further at the time. It would not be long, though, however, before new events and revelations would lead police back to looking at Swint. In 2007, investigators in Richmond would be informed that Tommy Swint had taken on a new job in Trotwood, a suburb of Dayton. A job as an officer for the Trotwood, Ohio, Police Department. Concerned that a person of interest in their investigation was now working as a police officer, investigators from the Richmond Police Department made the drive to Trotwood to speak with the police there. Upon being asked if Tommy Swint had disclosed that he was a major person of interest in the Nikki McCowan disappearance, they were caught off guard, as they had not been made aware of that information. According to the Dayton Daily News, Swint had come to the department with several excellent letters of recommendation from co-workers at the Montgomery pre-release program. However, Trotwood were also aware of an incident at the center where Swint had received a written reprimand for threatening a female captain. Swint had reportedly told the captain, quote, If I have anything to say to you, I will say it in the parking lot. You don't know who you are messing with. I'm Officer Swint. Outside of that reprimand, Swint would admit to pleading guilty to passing bad checks in 1992. To Trotwood PD, this was the extent of their knowledge on Swint's past transgressions. They knew nothing about his going AWOL from the Marines or him being a person of interest in Akeem McCown's disappearance. It was noted that had Swint been named an official suspect, he would have been flagged when running a background check on him. However, persons of interest aren't marked, so they didn't see it on the check. Regardless, Trotwood PD decided it was best not to have someone with a person of interest status as a police officer in the department. Trotwood would give Swint the opportunity to resign before they could terminate him. He would resign, but then would proceed to sue the Richmond Police Department, claiming he was never told he was a person of interest. He would go as far as holding a news conference to make his case. The lawsuit would ultimately be dropped with Richmond maintaining that they did indeed inform him of his person of interest status. The publicity of all this would make its way across the Dayton, Ohio area, and police would receive a phone call that would only lead to further suspicion on Tommy Swint. An anonymous caller had seen Tommy Swint on the news and recognized him. The caller contacted the Dayton Police Department and advised them to look at Swint in the 1991 murder of 33-year-old Tina Ivory. Tina Ivory, a local sex worker, went missing on December 14, 1991, in the city of Dayton. Her body was discovered by a tree-trimming crew who was working on Dayton Liberty Road on December 17. A worker noticed a strange hump under a quilt located in a pile of trash. Upon further inspection, 
they would find that the hump was the body of Tina Ivory. Tina had been wrapped in a quilt, which had been taped around her body. She was naked from the waist down and had one plastic bag over her legs and another over her head and torso. Both bags were taped together. Her pants, underwear, jacket, and shoes were all thrown into the bag around Tina's feet. A coroner would conclude that she had been strangled. Upon receiving the tip to look into Swint, investigators would waste little time speaking to friends and family. According to a February 21, 2010 article, a former girlfriend of Swint told investigators in May 2008 that Swint had dated Tina Ivory and that the blanket Tina was found in looked familiar to one Swint had carried in his vehicle. A nephew of the woman, who had lived with her and Swint, would recall seeing a blood trail from the basement window of their home that led through the grass to the trunk of Swint's car. When shown a picture of the blanket, the nephew also noted recognizing it. The Miami Valley Regional Crime Laboratory in Dayton had been running DNA tests on the Ivory case since 2005. There were four semen stains on the back of Tina's jacket and one on the front. They, however, were all from different men, plus a blood stain on the quilt. Dayton police did not have any DNA from Swint, but as luck would have it, Richmond police had obtained a mouse swab from him in April of 2008. The results of testing would conclude that one of the semen stains on the jacket did indeed belong to Swint. He wasn't positively matched to the blood stain on the quilt, but he also could not be excluded. At this juncture, Dayton investigators would interview Swint in his home, showing him a picture of Tina and the blanket. He would deny recognizing either of them. With the DNA being found on Tina's jacket not being quite enough to ensure any sort of conviction, investigators were at a standstill. Then, as luck would have it, a lab worker found a partial fingerprint on the adhesive tape that had been used to bound Tina's body. At this point, Tommy Swint had actually moved to Alabama. Working in conjunction with authorities in Alabama, a warrant was issued to obtain Swint's fingerprints. While obtaining the fingerprints, Swint was again shown pictures of Tina and the quilt. He again denied recognizing them. When informed that his DNA was found at the scene, he refused to talk any further. As you can probably already guess, in November of 2009, the fingerprints were confirmed to be a match. The print on the tape matched Swint's left middle finger. Soon, a three-prosecutor panel was reviewing the evidence. Bringing us back around to Nikki, Richmond police were optimistic about the looming indictment against Swint, with Detective Michelle Miller telling Crime Watch Daily, quote, We believe that through interviewing him in connection with that homicide, that we were going to be able to obtain information to figure out where Nikki was and what had happened to her. On February 3, 2010, Swint would be indicted by a grand jury. Dayton police contacted authorities in Phoenix, Alabama, who were waiting for the word to arrest Tommy Swint at his home. The moment had come. Tina Ivory was about to receive justice in her case, and answers could possibly be looming as to Nikki McCowan's whereabouts and what had happened to her. Unfortunately, justice and answers would not come. One hour after the indictment came through, police were closing in on the home of Tommy Swint, when, with a loud bang, a gunshot would ring through the air. As police neared the home, Tommy Swint had opted to take his own life rather than face justice for his crimes. It was a bittersweet ending to a long investigation. While never tried, 
it was highly likely the killer of Tina Ivory had been discovered. In Nikki's case, however, there was a chance to get information from someone who, thus far, only had circumstantial evidence against him. This could have been an opportunity for family and Richmond investigators to get more answers. If he did have the answers, though, he took them to the grave with him. Nikki's sister would tell Crime Watch Daily, quote, I was kind of mad at the fact they got an answer, and we don't. I mean, I'm glad it worked out for them, but it was a total double sword for us, because we still didn't have an answer. All might not be lost, though. Detective Miller would go on to tell Crime Watch, quote, I believe that there's another person of interest that Tommy was close to that has some of the answers, if not all of them. There's another person. It was a co-worker of his that he had a relationship with, and I believe that person probably does know more. The individual is said to be a love interest of Swint's, with whom he may have shared pillow talk with about Nikki's disappearance. To this individual, Nikki's sister Tammy would have this to say, quote, I know Swint told you something. To clear your conscience, and you're supposed to be a Christian now, go ahead and get right with God. Get right with us. That's my message for her. It's been four years, going on five, since the revelation that there may be another person with information. With that in mind, there has been no major movement on Nikki's case since 2010, when Tommy Swint chose to take his own life. Now, sitting at 21 years since Nikki's disappearance, we're left with a lot of burning questions and a handful of theories. The earliest theory was that Bobby Webster, Nikki's fiancé at the time of her disappearance, was responsible. Most of this was brought about due to Bobby's behavior after Nikki's disappearance. He attempted to get money back from the wedding, engagement ring, and Nikki's tuition. He defended these actions by stating he was getting money to assist with searches. He did also allegedly fail a polygraph, but as per usual, they're not relatable. I would never agree to one in the case where I knew I was innocent, and I'm basically throwing that test to the side. As far as his behavior, he could be telling the truth about the money, or he could have had more nefarious reasons. But either way, we don't know for sure. Not everyone reacts the same to a loved one's disappearance. And while it does end up being a boyfriend in a lot of cases, there's also a fair share of cases where a boyfriend, parents, or other various loved ones act as suspiciously after a murder or disappearance, only for someone else to later be found guilty. Being an outsider to all this, I can't judge him too much on his actions, but he ultimately was cleared by police. Also cleared right away was Stephen Johnston, Nikki's ex-boyfriend and the father of her daughter, Peyton. He was able to give a solid alibi to his whereabouts. People may question the fact that Nikki's vehicle was found at his apartment complex and was even moved over a period of several months. And if he was innocent, why didn't he notice the vehicle? From what I can see on Google Maps, the apartment complex is pretty sizable, with multiple buildings and parking areas. If the vehicle was never parked near Stephen's unit, it's not that hard to believe that he never even saw it. Getting those two out of the way, that now brings us to Tommy Swint. Swint certainly has the most going against him here. He worked with Nikki, had an alleged obsession with her, had a history of violence towards women, including being linked to the murder of Tina Ivory. He also lived in close proximity to where Nikki's vehicle was found, and he could have been storing her vehicle at the apartment complex while driving at short distances. 
So phone records put Nikki talking to someone about a mile from the apartment complex, reportedly a co-worker, who has never been named publicly, but I can't help but wonder if it was Tommy Swint. While Swint was reportedly obsessive, this was at the observation of Nikki's family. Reports are murky on the definite status between Nikki and Swint. Family maintains they weren't together, but them being friends has never been ruled out. If Nikki did go to Dayton to see Swint, or even another co-worker, one does beg the question as to why she didn't tell anyone. Dayton is about a 90 to 120 minute round trip from Richmond, so it's possible she thought she could make the trip quickly without it hindering any of her afternoon plans. As far as Swint is concerned, investigators have noted they believe he may have been involved in other murders outside of Tina Ivory. Involvement in Nikki's disappearance groups in with that. Unfortunately, like a straight coward, he took all the answers with him when he chose to take his own life. All the red flags are there, screaming at us that it could be him. But unfortunately, we lack the final piece of the puzzle to let us know for sure. For the two men who were allegedly harassing Nikki at the laundromat, given all the circumstances given, I truly don't think they were likely involved, but it's always a possibility. Saying anything more would be brass speculation, though. It's been 21 years since Nikki McCowan set out to pick up her laundry and disappeared. In that time, leads have come, but unfortunately roadblocks would appear at every turn. For every step forward, it would be two steps back. Or in the case of Tommy Swint, several miles back. Nikki was only a few weeks away from her wedding when she disappeared. She should have been celebrating one of the happiest days of her life, which in turn should have turned to years of happiness with her new husband and the possible family they could have built together. She should have been able to finish school and follow her career path into law enforcement. Instead, something happened that day, July 22, 2001. Something that has yet to be discovered. A sister, daughter, a fiancé, and most importantly, a mother, vanished without a trace, leaving those who loved her without answers. Answers that could have been found if the man who may have had them hadn't selfishly taken them with him in a final act of cowardice. Barbara McGowan, Nikki's mother, passed away in 2020, never finding the answers she so desperately yearned for. Nikki's siblings and daughter carry on the fight for answers, though. In a 2021 Dayton Daily News article about the 20th anniversary of Nikki's disappearance, her daughter Peyton, who had just celebrated her ninth birthday when Nikki disappeared, had this to say. Quote, it hasn't been easy. All girls want their mom. I got married. I went through pregnancy without that motherly advice. It's something I've always longed for, and being able to argue about the little things. It sounds silly, but it's something you never imagine. At the time of her disappearance, Marilyn Nicole McCowan was five foot two and 115 pounds. She's described as an African-American female with light brown hair and brown eyes. She has a small scar above her left eye, a small scar on the right side of her face, a scar on the top of her head, and a large scar on her lower left leg. While her first name is Marilyn, she goes by the nickname Nikki, spelled N-I-Q-U-I. She was last seen near the Richmond Coin Laundry at South 10th Street and East Street in Richmond, Indiana, at around 3 p.m. on July 22, 2001. 
She may have traveled to the Dayton, Ohio area after leaving the laundromat. She was reported to be wearing a bright pink and purple floral swimsuit top, dark colored shorts, diamond earrings, and a white gold bracelet. Nikki was 28 at the time of her disappearance, and if alive today, she would be 49 years old. Foul play is suspected in her disappearance. If you have any information on the disappearance of Nikki McCowan, please contact the Richmond, Indiana Police Department at 765-983-7247. If you would like additional information, the Dayton Daily News provided the most coverage. Nikki's case was covered on Season 11, Episode 10 of Unsolved Mysteries. This is earlier coverage, and it does not include a lot of later information. Crime Watch Daily also covered Nikki's case. You can also check out the page, Missing Nikki McCowan, on Facebook. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relative to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches, and more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.